you're louder than us. I don't know if that is good for, I don't know what that means. Okay, we were just, um, I started recording just in case anyone says anything interesting on accident. But. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> um, um, yeah. I have to I have to grab some medicine real quick. I'll be back in just a second. Okay, okay. He's talking about heroin. All right. Okay. Did we actually lose Caitlin? Is Caitlin actually getting heroin or is she? I think she is. Oh, are you on the inhaler? Yeah, uh, I'm yeah. having an asthma attack. Are you okay? Do we need to like wait or you need to stop? No, I'm okay. I'm always having an asthma attack. I broke two teeth this week. Well, I broke one tooth and one crown grinding my teeth in my sleep. Uh huh. Really? Wow. <laughs> Jesus. I saw you. I saw you missing on Facebook, but I wasn't sure. Like you broke them in your sleep. Well, no, I broke them because I had already cracked them they in my sleep, them. and so they oh, they broke goodness. off while I was eating. Jesus, Do you have to like wear mouthpiece when you sleep now. Well, I'm, I'm supposed to get it on Tuesday, so I hope that helps me to get through these troubled times. Have you been sleeping well, with a... Hmm? Go ahead. I, was, I was just going to recommend sleeping with a rag in your mouth until... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> well, now that means that every member of this podcast uh, has a, has had a mouthpiece at some point. That's good. Yeah. You've, you've been welcome to the club. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I had a mouthpiece when I played football. Oh, that's right. I forget. I used to wear um, actually a boxer's mouthpiece while I slept because I couldn't afford a, a, a night guard. Are they different? <clears throat> yeah, I mean, a, a boxer's mouthpiece is a huge thing. A mouth, um, uh, a night guard just fits over your teeth exactly. It's uh, made to order. But I mean. My understanding is that if you're a boxer, they should do that too. No, I don't know. Well, a boxer, I, I got the one that I got, you um, just put it in hot water and then bit into it and it formed to your teeth. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's what I use for boxing. But I think like, like if you're like a professional boxer, you get like the custom made ones. Oh yeah, I don't, I don't doubt it, but yeah. I have, but I didn't completely have interesting. a custom made one. <laughs> I'm glad we're recording this because uh, this is the most interesting story I'm ever going to tell you is that um, like I, when I moved back over here, but when things were still open, I was going to jujitsu and I got a new mouthpiece, but it was a little bit too small. So every time I was like wrestling with people, I'd almost swallow it and choke on it. It was kind of terrifying. <laughs> and I was, I was, you know, I was going to get a new mouthpiece, but that's the pandemic has taken that joy from me too. No new mouthpiece. Why? It's okay. Are you back? <laughs> yeah, I'm back. Sorry, I've been back. I've been just really enjoying all these um, these mouthpiece stories. Yeah. So, welcome to Attica Shrugged, a podcast about um, politics and culture in the South. And uh, since we forgot completely to do an introduction last week, and we might have like tons and tons of new listeners because we're so exciting, um, uh, I'll we can introduce ourselves and kind of explain who we are. So, I'm Wes Cheek. I uh, I live in Japan and research disasters, but I'm from uh, Northwest Florida uh, and lived in New Orleans for the last eight years. So, uh, David, why don't you go next? Uh, yeah, I'm David Dykes. I'm from Rockford, Tennessee. 
uh, just south of Knoxville in East Tennessee, and uh, I live in Mexico. All right, Chad, and then we'll get to Caitlin last. And I am a Chad, and I I am from Tazewell, Tennessee, in the beautiful uh, Cumberland Gap region. Uh, but I currently live in Houston, Texas, and teach math. Uh, send help. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and so our special guest this week is um, my friend Caitlin from uh, New Orleans. So, Caitlin, do you give a brief introduction of yourself? Sure. Um, so I'm Caitlin Marone. Uh, I am originally from Little Rock, Arkansas, and I now live in New Orleans, um, but I am a socialist organizer. I work throughout the South um, working with DSA. So uh, can you hear me? Am I super quiet still? Do, am I you're quieter me? than us, but that's that's just uh, sexism. Uh, but you're a little bit quiet. Okay. I will try to speak there you go. louder. There you go. Okay, cool. Um, yeah. So uh, yeah, I live in New Orleans and that's who I am. Hello. Okay. We we should also specify, since my mom listens to this podcast, that you're from Little Rock, which she'll be very excited about, but you did not go to Central. No, I went to Parkview, the rival school of Central High School. I mean... You told me it's the rival. I always understood Hall was the rival, but it I'm is, not... But we also... Con- yeah. Okay. I mean, technically, yes. But we also considered Central a rival, which is <laughs> sad. It's really... It's sad. Does Central consider you a rival, I suppose? No. No, it's a one-sided thing, I'm pretty sure. This is like an LSU situation. I was going to say like Florida and Tennessee. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. While I was was in high school, Sarah Huckabee Sanders was going to Central High School, which um, is a good reason to hold them as rivals. Uh, (laughs) In hindsight, but at the time, we didn't know. We didn't know it was lurking. The Huckabee family has been like uh, detrimental to all of our lives, really. I mean, then they moved on and they stole our beach in Florida. So then, you know, I don't know if you keep up with that, but Mike Huckabee built, I guess it's his primary residence now, but his beach house in Walton County and then declared that the beach in front of his house down to the waterline was private property and got his neighbors to go along with that. And they stole the beach. What an asshole. Yeah, he's pretty much a renowned asshole and uh, father of dog murderers. Yeah, that's a bad guy. Um. So anyway, so yeah, Caitlin, I, I, um, I, I realized that all three of you have been in my living room in New Orleans at some point, but not at the same time. So we all have that in common. Um. And also, uh, David used to live in New Orleans for for a long time, but uh, something weird happened in New Orleans that drove a lot of people out of the city. I can't remember what it was exactly. Something a while back. Um. <laughs> It wasn't the integration of the school system. David. <laughs> <laughs> I'll point that out. I realized I left that one. Um, all right. So, uh, but we want to talk about like cause these these um, people are really excited because Georgia flipped blue as bad as a rubric for anything as as that is right. Like there's no you know it's still very close in votes and all that. And then these, these, the special election in the Senate's coming up in Georgia, which now, because it will decide kind of the power of the Senate, everybody's focusing on. And so we've seen a lot of people uh, say, you know, organize the South, hashtag organize the South. And I know uh, both of us have definitely said that as well. But then I was thinking about like, what does that mean exactly? What does that look like? And I asked you that question and you said you're thinking about it too. So I figured um, since we have uh, people from the South on here who've in different kind of um, experiences uh, tried to organize some form of people in the South, like what, what, what is that? So I'm just going to toss that one out there to you. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think that I personally, after the election, I'm having a lot of 
or just the whole election, right? Like over the past uh, year and a half. I mean, I think about this all the time because it's literally my job, but also because it feels like a this massive challenge. Like the, I don't know. So, I mean, we have such a low union density, right? And that feels like the foundation of so much organizing. And also we, there's just been like decades of, intense like individualist brainwashing especially to people in the south especially through like religious teachings and i guess i don't know i'm not going to start talking about that because i don't know shit about religion but um it feels like that's a huge part of it and so we find like i don't know i just remember back in the primary whenever like bernie was still in the race right and everybody was very excited about bernie but then like there was this moment where right before he dropped out, he was going to have an event in Mississippi and right. we were busy like yeah. trying to get shit together to like get socialists out to the, the rally and like try to recruit and all this stuff. And it, then like hours before he announced he was just going to go to, uh, um, God, I can't even remember, somewhere in the Midwest instead. Right, right. And um, that was the most, <laughs> I think they put into trying to organize in the South, trying to get yeah. support in the South. And I was furious for like a, a minute, um, but then I re- realized like there's just so much else that needs to happen before we can even get close to doing anything that's even remotely like electing somebody like Bernie Sanders to be the Democratic nominee. Like we're just there's just so much that needs to be built, and we are very behind. <laughs> yeah, like. yeah. One thing I'm curious about though, so like last week on here we were talking about because the the Florida Democratic Party. Um, did very poorly in this election. It's performed poorly across like a lot of election cycles now. And so I was talking about my experience, um, both being like, I was uh, president of the Young Democrats when I was like 37, I was president of the Young Democrats for, uh, <laughs> this might be one of the starting problems, <laughs> um, for, uh, for Okaloosa County in the Panhandle, Matt Gates hometown. And then, you know, uh, I tried to run for Congress, uh, which would have, was against Jeff Miller, but it would have ended up being against Matt Gates. And like, I was kind of talking through a lot of problems I saw in the Florida Democratic Party. But then, like, I don't think, I don't think those problems translate across everything that we think of as the South, right? I don't think those are Mississippi problems or Arkansas problems or Tennessee problems. Um, so I'm just curious, like, how much of this, too, like, organizing the South is trying to figure out, like, all of these really, really different places? I mean, I guess I don't know what the problem with the problems that the Florida Democratic Party are exactly except for what people have described to me, which has been in detail. Um, yeah. But I, I actually do think the problem of the Democratic Party is very similar across the South, actually. Like, they don't try to win. <laughs> like, yeah, I, I think so, yes. I, was just, I would put most under that heading. But like, what, what does that mean exactly? What does that look like? Like, I feel that very much, too. And I think that in Florida, too. But like, what what is that not trying to win? Um, well, I, you know, I, I, I don't want to be the only person talking. I'm not used to having this much space to talk, um, in a group of people, but, um, <laughs> but I, you know, it looks like supporting really shitty candidates, right? If they support yes. anybody at all, actually what it looks like, okay, let's take Louisiana as an example. Uh-huh. Um, Marguerite Green, uh, our yeah. beloved recent, uh, Great. socialist candidate for, um, ag, uh, ag commissioner here in Louisiana, who, lost the primary, um, but was second. Uh, she, 
the Democratic Party endorsed all three candidates for the Louisiana Democratic Party endorsed all three candidates for ag commissioner, mm-hmm. um, one of whom is quite conservative and he's the one who won and he's the one who had all the money. But like Margie had, uh, that's what I call her, sorry. Margie had like all the like actual grassroots support, right? And right. if they had supported her and like actually endorsed one person, um, mm-hmm she could have possibly won and we could have had like a radically different like which they they didn't right they didn't want to make a choice and i apparently that's their standard practice is they just endorse (laughs) everybody they just want everybody to win and to me that act feels like actively trying to lose um because it's like we don't give a fuck you know just like yeah um and you know and and what it what it does is it leads to the candidate with the most money always winning because there's just like, cause that's the only thing that becomes like important in that way. Ra- I mean, it's very important all the time. Right. But like yeah. in a place, in places where like this sort of really massive um, grassroots mobilization is necessary to get progressive candidates in office, like is really, really difficult because it's not dense and there's not a lot of like, urban areas and stuff it just becomes impossible to like run the kind of grassroots no i don't want to say impossible but like difficult it becomes very very difficult to to actually win those kinds of races and like we saw that in tennessee you know with this last election with marquita bradshaw who like did it had a really great showing um but it's partially because tennessee has a bunch of cities i think um but also um you know because people were excited but she still didn't really get that close to winning you know, and mm. yeah, I don't know. Um, yeah, there's like 50 different things in there I want to talk about. So I'll try <laughs> to forget all of them. But like I, I was saying uh, last week, like with Florida, part of the problem is, and this was my experience as a as a almost candidate, sort of quasi candidate, was that like they they try to recruit people who already have money so that they can run them so they can skip all of the middle parts of having to actually do all of this grassroots stuff right they want they want someone who who is like has a big name and if not a big name has a lot of money so they can just walk in and run the campaign and do it and there there it is and so it's easy that way and so that tends to be how they try to recruit people. And it turns out that that doesn't necessarily mean you're finding good candidates at all. You're often finding really bad candidates. And then the thing about not wanting to win comes in because uh, moral victories are kind of enough. And it's easy to just fall back on saying, well, we don't win here anyway. We're not going to win. We don't win here. So like, what's the big deal about losing again and again and again? I think the, the focus on money also keeps them maybe a little bit more focused on suburbs than they should be because there's urban, urban votes in the South um, tend more towards Democrat. And I mean that both in the sense of African-American votes, but also just the, the cities. If you're progressive, if you're liberal, whatever, you have a tendency to move closer to a city. <clears throat> and um, if you're, you know, if you're trying to win Knox County in Tennessee, for example, you're not going to win it if you're a Democrat. But you, but the city is run by Democrats, right. um, and not not wild-eyed Democrats or anything, but uh, um, kind of solid, solid liberal progressive Democrats. 
Actually, I'm right. pretty sure there's a socialist on Knoxville City Council. There is, yeah. I think there's multiple. I think there are multiple. Um, yeah. In the last, they don't have wild eyes. They don't have wild eyes, <laughs> but there are. I think there are at least two, maybe three. You may have to correct um, correct me on that. It was. Um, well, it's funny. This is. The, oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. I, I go. I was just going to talk. I was going to talk about Texas because in Texas, no, you know, there was the whole yeah, thing with Beto. Uh, Beto O'Rourke was really pushing part of a campaign to to flip not only to flip Texas but to get the the how like the Texas Senate and House like blue, and I mean, and it totally fell. Um, you know, I mean, as much as like the Democrats fell on their face nationally, I mean, it fell flat on its face um statewide and there's a there's a good interview with mike siegel who is running for he's from austin and he won in 2018 for the house like he for the house um but then he lost uh this time and kind of like what's kind of a lot of those you know they just focused like the basically the message was like we're not like we're not the party of like we're the party of not trump and right. so vote for us like um I don't know. Yeah, one one thing to what David was saying and to Caitlin was saying too, like I was kind of thinking about this because like when I teach like urban theory stuff all the time, right? I teach all the time like uh, urban and rural aren't aren't real things. These are ideologies. Like there's not the city and the country are not. These are all part of the same thing, right? They're not different. But then whenever we look at these voting stuff, like right, like I have to say, well, these things look very different in the country than they do in the city, and things, you know. Um, and so I'm kind of struggling with what that, what what that real difference uh, is there. But I think what Caitlin points out is one. It's like hard. Well, it's hard to canvas in a, when you have to drive around like you know, twenty minutes between houses and things like that. And I think you know. Also, we look a lot. Um, if you go back, I know everyone loves going back and reading David Harvey pieces. But if you go back and read um, Social Justice in the City, he talks about how. Like this was not unintentional the way a lot of rural areas are set up where factories like industry used to be an urban thing in America. Right. But this was like spread out, especially in the South, because you had one, you could uh, get anti-union laws and two, you could spread people out to where they couldn't really organize themselves because they were so spread out across a landscape and a landscape that was often hostile to them. Right. You have lots of um, immigrants who work in factories. You have lots of of uh, all kinds of oppressed people with low wages working factories who are kind of out there in this landscape that is that is not easy to organize and also often hostile to them. Uh, and like David, we've made the point on here before, like David was saying, like, it's not just a lot of people will say like, well, cities are Democrat, the country is Republican, but it's not always that simple. If you grow up being um, not not conservative in the country, it's often not the safest place for you to live. And you do go to cities to find other people like you. So anyway, just throwing those out there. Anybody else? Well, and I, I mean, that was, well, I was going to say like the rural development was the fact that like a lot of rural voters voted, like did not vote Democrat in Texas. And that was kind of what killed, uh, was what killed the sort of like the Democrat, the, the push to, to, to make Texas blue. And, but then also not only that, but like the Rio Grande Valley, like there was no, they just didn't do anything. Like the Democrats didn't do anything and no, which is insane to me or anything in the, in the, in the, in the Valley. Um, just, yeah, go ahead, David. I'm sorry. Oh, I, I was just going to say, I looked it up and in 2017, uh, DSA party member Seema Singh Perez, first Indian American, uh, 
and first ESA member on the Knoxville, Tennessee City Council. And then last year it was um, Amelia Parker mm-hmm. won and, re- and didn't say um, the part about so help me God when she was taking the oath of office, which got a lot of people very upset. So right. help me God. <laughs> I mean, ultimately, though, this stuff is not actually a mystery, right? Like, we can be confused about why the Democrats don't do this shit. Like, every single, like, as long as, as much as we want, as long as we want to, like, lie to ourselves. But, like, in reality, what's actually happening is that they don't want to win because they are, their material interests are the same as the Republicans. They're often wealthy, and they like they don't care what the what form the power comes in or what how the money comes in, right? They raise a ton of money on these losing races because people are desperate and they want things to change. And you know, it's just I don't know. It just keeps coming back to that for me. Like we, the, and I, the Louisiana Democratic yeah. Party just elected basically a Republican to like head the entire party in Louisiana, and it's not for any good reason except that like it like the interests of people who have political power and want political power very are the same. And I, you know, I don't know. I, I have a hard time going I, past that. I agree that, that that that's largely true, but I think also part of it is that they're afraid that that's what the democratic base feels too, that it's not just about their personal interests, but they also underestimate how liberal the base of the democratic party is or could be. Yeah. And I, so I always try to give people like, there's two, there's two different ways of looking at the democratic party. And I don't, you know, I can give you the answer, I think, but I'm just going to two different ways of looking at it is one that it is an actual um, is an actual bulwark against Republican ideas, but it's just terribly ineffective at that, that it's just uh, keystone cops um, stacking up, stepping on the broom, hitting themselves in the head all the time, all of those things. It, that's what they are. Or it's just a pressure release valve for for um, making sure that actual like left wing change doesn't doesn't happen right that actual the kind of material interest of republicans and democrats in leadership positions are basically the same and the democratic party is the pressure valve that lets off steam for that right and if you're kind of using those two lenses to examine it i I don't know which one is more frustrating like if they're trying to win and are actually uh bad at it that's just insanely frustrating to me and if they're just working as a pressure valve to let off steam that's also frustrating but i don't I guess where I I come down to it, I think there's a lot of people who are like um, rank and file voters for the Democratic Party who would love for them to represent their material interests and would love for them to fight and love for them to be a bulwark against Republican ideas. But those are not the people who are who are in control of the party. Right. Absolutely Um, not. And they do their best to make sure that they don't become the voice of the party like they don't attempt to I mean in my experience, so I don't want to say like it never happens, but they're like, there are very few attempts to like open up the internal processes to like actually let working class people like be part of the decision making process. They're really reluctant to do that. And like, if you, if you are a working class person, you want to get involved, like 
you really got to be the kind of person that they that fits what they're looking for, which is a person who's not going to ask questions about like, well, why is it that we don't support actual policies that materially benefit working people? Like, I don't know. Like every single working class candidate that's won in the past few years has not had the support, necessarily had the support of the party where they are. Um, right, and often to work elite. against them. Right? Yeah, yes. Um, yeah, and so like I was talking about last week, my big initiative when I was uh, the old president of the Young Democrats was to get people who are not party affiliated to be able to come to meetings and things like that, right? I thought like that's that's who we should be reaching out to. Those are the really the audience and kind of people my age and younger um, don't want to necessarily be affiliated with the Democratic Party and, and for a lot of good reasons, right? But it would be one way to get them in. And some people at the local level were like, I understand that argument. But when we took it up to the state level, they were like, no, no way. That's not what we do. We're a political party. And I understand inside of their logic, I understand that. But it seems to me to be a self-defeating, uh, a self-defeating argument. Um, and, but I will tell people, and I say this consistently, if you don't live in a city with like a big democratic machine, you can go take over your local democratic party. And I suggest that you do. And I don't even mean that in an aggressive way. Like they're so, so often staffed by people or like run by people who are either retirees um, who would love help or really busy people who don't have time. And if you're a person who shows up and just says like, I'll... Uh, take out the folding chairs, then within like the year, you'll probably be in charge of something, right? It's not the hardest thing in the world to go do. That's, but that's at the very local level, right? That's um, things you can do locally. Uh, when you start getting higher than that, I don't know how it works because I was never, I was never privy um, <laughs> to that. I was never allowed there. So I don't know. Uh, but I wanted to like maybe shift it a little bit to talk about like, again, with this election, we saw like all of those maps were like, uh, who would have won if people who didn't vote voted right if, if didn't vote was a category right didn't vote wins tons of elections especially in the south right so like who who are if you're talking about organizing the south i, I assume like part of the task is is not just going to be what's the matter with the democratic party it's going to be organizing people who are not involved in voting and not involved in politics so like who are so i guess caitlin you've been working on this a lot so who are those people i mean it's we're gonna need everybody right like we need yeah. <laughs> the multi-generational, uh, multi-racial working class. Um, right. I mean, and who are I, they? <laughs> it depends on where you are. Right. Um, <laughs> one of the things that like is is necessary is for people to like start to learn who that is, where they are, right, and start to like figure out what what people need and what people care about, and like I don't know. Um, that's like task number one, and I it's very difficult right now because you can't even leave your home really. But like, right. I mean, that's where all any organizing should start, right? Is like at that level. But, um, you know, we can organize people around labor. We can organize people around other material interests they might have, you know, that they have um, into, into campaigns to try to win like actual gains on the local level. Um, it's just, yeah, I don't know. It's the the thing is, like, I think, and I might be totally wrong about this, but like, for so long in the South, left organizing has been so like so much about like trying to make yourself independent of the state because the state is such a violent institution that like um, engaging with it is not necessarily like 
helpful thing in the immediate, right? And like, um, it's been so much about like building these alternative communities and alternative like, uh, yeah, groups. I, I don't know. I'm thinking a lot about like how when I, like growing up, I, I remember just, it was either like you, like the only far left organizing really, and I say that in quotations that like was going on in, in, in Little Rock was like punk anarchists were putting on shows and putting out zines and like living in houses together. And that was like, that's what I remember in, in Memphis as well. But although, although I think some of y'all are from Memphis, so maybe it's different, but like, um, no, no, no Memphis people. That's, uh, Oh, good. No. Okay, so Memphis is basically being a Yankee. Great. Okay, then, <laughs> what I'm saying is correct and no one can question me, but it's so much of it is about like building community outside of like the main, like the mainstream and there's a place for that, but it's not actually about building real power. Um, right. It hasn't been, at least like not in a multiracial, multi-generational sense. And we have to start actually dealing with power rather than being afraid of it or like afraid to confront power directly, um, which the South has not always been afraid of, right? Like that's obviously right. like so much of the history of the South is actually people doing the opposite. But um, I think people are rightfully like they got kind of timid about it for a long time and but they won right didn't most of the people in the south who confronted power i'm pretty sure they didn't they win all the time i'm remembering <laughs> history wrong well I, that makes me think i was gonna i almost confronted you a little bit about what was going on in little rock and then i realized uh that there's a big difference in our ages and so i had a friend who <laughs> i had a friend who ran for um uh city council in little rock and he ran on the acorn ticket and Jesse Jackson was there helping to organize. And there was a lot of community organization uh, on the left. Uh, but that was in the early 1980s, which was probably before you were born. Uh, yeah. But uh, I will say yeah. like the, the, the utter destruction of acorn, I think was a massive setback for organizing in the South, like just like hard to, yeah, it was hard to express how much disastrous it's really this is kind of a diversion and i won't go too far down but i talk it's weird i talked to some former acorn people in new orleans who were insistent like that it wasn't a big deal and that acorn was falling apart anyway but then it seems to me like such a huge hit to to, to anything it probably depends on where you were i mean new orleans has a really strong structure of African-American churches, of a lot of different community organizations. And if you're in, you know, a majority black city that has a lot of infrastructure, probably it didn't hit them nearly as hard as it would, you know, Nashville or um, certainly Knoxville, places where there's still a black minority and where there's not been a lot of successful organization in the past. Yeah, and it also I think it also kind of doesn't matter, right? Like, doesn't matter if it was because the organization itself was like on the out, like on the way out, or you know, or if it was Project Veritas. Like, either way, it would have been a huge loss. Yeah, and I also should say, like, I'm I I don't mean to speak out of turn. This is like talking to people about their jobs, and I think there were like internal tensions as well. The like, I you know, I don't know what was going on between individuals and the organization, right? Like to me, it seems like a uh, I don't know who replaces what they did, right? That was a pretty big thing to replace. 
Um, also, yeah, that's one of the things um, Jeff Miller, who was before Matt Gates, you know, that was one of his big deals was taking down Acorn. He was very proud of that. Um, anyway, uh, bad Florida congressman again. Um, but yeah, we kind of touched on this one thing I was going to ask you about. And, and uh, I think we were either talking to each other or past each other on Twitter about it the other day, uh, which must be a first. Um, uh, but uh, about like you were talking about the appeal to to Southern labor history as being something that is like in the past and we need to kind of like not rely on that as a frame of reference. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like, we're, Yeah, oh, I know. Yeah. And so like, um, and I was thinking, well, I often do it, but I think we're kind of saying the same thing because I often say it as, you know, kind of, don't you remember that this happened? Don't you remember, uh, not who you as an individual used to be, but don't you remember like what this area used to stand for? But, uh, you, you were right. And it it doesn't mean that like, I, you know, I think, um, Joe Manchin was on the other day with the, uh, my butt defund the police, right? And I was responding with pictures of the Battle of Blair Mountain, but the Battle of Blair Mountain doesn't really, that doesn't, what does that have to do with West Virginia as a DC commuter community now? I don't know, right? So uh, could you elaborate a little bit on on that point that you're making? Oh, yeah. I mean, let me just say, I, again, like, I love the labor history of West Virginia. I think it's so fucking cool and inspiring. And I remember learning about the Battle of Blair Mountain and just being like so angry that I'd never been taught it before and like determined to make sure that like this memory would live on, whatever. And I like volunteered to do shit that like was in that, you know, I think it's really important. Um, Mm. But the fact is like so much of the labor history of the South, happened in the early 20th century and in the left history of the south i mean at least like the times when when the left had power right and um and it's great to remember that but like at the same time like material conditions are very different now and we've had how many years of just like the undermining of that like very intentionally and like when we it's good to be reminded, I think, probably that it it's not inherent to the geographic locations that we're in that this shit is impossible, right? It, yeah. It's not, but it's also not necessarily always helpful to act like that's how, like that's the people of West Virginia. I mean, it's almost like this romanticization of like the the people of West Virginia in in a way that like it does not actually reflect reality today and it's really important to ask why that is, right? Like it's really, it really matters a lot to not just say like Joe Manchin is out of touch because Joe Manchin is not out of touch. Joe Manchin- He wins all the time. (laughs) Elected over and over and over again for decades. And like, I mean, maybe he's out of touch with a lot of people, but like, like, let's look at the, Paula Jean Swearingen ran for the second time in this race and she still got like, she got like a very small portion of the vote again against Shelley Moore Capito. And, like, we have to deal with that reality. We can't just say, like, the things that you're saying, Joe Manchin, aren't true and don't reflect the interests or mm-hmm. don't reflect the opinions of the people that you work for. Like, you don't know because you're not talking to those people. And, like, it, it's like this denial. Like, the, like we talk all of the time about the working class um, and there's this idea that, like, if they just heard the good word, like, they would be on our side, right? Yeah. But, that, like people in West Virginia aren't unaware of their own history. I mean, some people are sure, but like, it's not like they don't know about the 
the United Mine Workers or whatever, you know, they just, <laughs> that's just not where they're at anymore. Right. And like right, coal miners vote for Joe Manchin. Right. I mean, there aren't that many coal miners, so it's no. not like, it's like an idea more than any, but, but it's like this, if we can't face like the fact that what we need right now is a multiracial I, I keep saying this because for a reason, but like we need a multiracial, multi-generational working class left movement, and we are never going to get it if we keep romanticizing the idea of the 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 white working class as this like group of people that like uh, were at the Battle of Blair Mountain and then like something happened and now we're here. Like if we don't understand that like this is a group of people who have been weaponized by the right in order to like prevent labor organizing and prevent like actual progress from being made um, for the working class. Like, then we're just, we just keep lying to ourselves about it and we're never going to get anywhere. And people who think that they're supporting work, like the Southern working class, like they say that shit, but where are they? Like, what? <laughs> I don't know. I'm ranting now um, in a way right. that's not necessarily helpful, but uh, I find it. We, we keep this strict outline on this podcast about what we're okay. talking yeah, about. Yeah, no, I'm sorry. I'm kidding. <laughs> looking back um uh, seeing now that you said stop okay stop talking about okay yeah i got it i'm done <laughs> no i mean i do the same i'm guilty of the same thing right like i always go on and on about how the area i'm from was like 90 percent fdr v- voters and when my grandmother who passed away like 10 years ago was a kid right um and so i, I appeal back to that idea and i don't think it's completely empty because i remember you know my grandmother talking about how important it was for her family to be fdr voters and how that that election when he got elected was a huge deal for all of these um all of the all of the people who lived around there who went on mass to vote for fdr right on horseback and she's a vivid memory for her and then you know went overwhelmingly for kennedy and then made that switch to goldwater but it's not like me saying that would change the vote. I mean, there's people from that, not necessarily the FDR generation, but who can remember their parents voting for FDR who enthusiastically vote for Reagan, Bush, and Trump, right? And so it's not like just telling them, remember that your parents voted for FDR uh, does much about that. So I think, I, think, I think you're right, but I also still like, I, I do think there's some... Well, you're saying this too, but I think there's some there's some use in, in reminding people. But this also used to exist, right? A different formation of this also used to exist. Mm-hmm. But a big part of the difference between even as late as JFK, mm-hmm. the Civil Rights Act hadn't been passed, and the yeah, uh, white flight hadn't happened in the South in the yeah, ways that it it has, and the labor movement was in a lot of ways and in a lot of places trying to be really inclusive, but then in other places not trying to be inclusive at all and was largely a white person's um, um, organization, I think because they were maybe a little afraid to try to take on the whole um, of Southern segregation at the same time they were trying to take on workers' rights when, of course, the two things are are not really separable. And, uh, I, you know, I think that's really the, the dividing line is there, is uh, white flight and um, white suburbs and a further segregation of the South in some ways ideologically, even though um, technically and legally there was less segregation. 
And so many of the working class in the South are African-American workers and always have been, but uh, increasingly in positions that should be the sort that the left is empowering and trying to empower. But it's, uh, yeah, I think even Bernie got in a little trouble for conflating black economic oppression as workers with the entire black oppressive experience. Um, and then he stood, and then once he got in a little bit of trouble, he stood back and listened and learned something, which was a, a good moment for him, I think. But uh, yeah, the, we don't of course live in a post-racial society and it's always the elephant in the room. I think, especially when you're talking about how the working class is divided yeah, and I should say, like, when I refer back to those maps, it's always like they change immediately during the Goldwater election. And anyone familiar with history, that's not a secret as to why it flips from FDR, Kennedy, boom, Goldwater, right? Like, that's the civil rights bill happening right there. This one does that. Um, what was the next I was going to ask? Oh, oh, I know what to ask about. So I've been kind of uh, uh, talking about this, and I don't know how true it is, but we'll see. Like, I think... Okay, I should ask you, East Tennessee people, and uh, Caitlin, you also, am I allowed to say where you went to college, Caitlin? Yes. Okay, you went to App State, right? Yes. Yeah, so you are familiar with that that area as well. We have lots of friends who went there, and they all uh, got a lot of good weed out of it. Um, (laughs) Isn't that the the take on Appalachian State? Someone told me that when we were in North Carolina last time. I don't know. Allegedly. Allegedly. No I didn't one we know. Smoke weed in college, so I don't know. Well, we'll give you your, your trophy uh, after the podcast for that. Okay. You, yeah. made it, you made it through. You made it through. Um, but, like, so I, I worry sometimes, too, talking about this kind of uh, left and maybe what we can think of as the new left are people who have been excited after Trump to start exploring socialism and leftism, um, kind of having this idealized vision of, of what leftism in the South can be. And I, I think a lot of it kind of focuses on this like image of Kentucky for a lot of reasons, or at least an image of Appalachia broadly for a lot of reasons, right? And so... Um, one with the Georgia elections coming up, I'm like wondering how much we're going to see Georgia and Georgia turning blue covered as like a, like Kentucky or Appalachia story and how much, and does that, does that affect us like in organizing the South at all? If we think of everywhere, everywhere in the South as being Appalachia and not Appalachia Cola. That's my, I should make that my slogan. (laughs) Um, All right. So that, that's my question. And that's for any of, any of y'all out there. I don't really get it. What do you mean? You don't get it? Sorry. I see, like, I, I think there's a lot of uh, people not from the South who look at the South and say, aha, I understand it. Uh, coal miners, hollers, um, white people, you know, poor white people. Uh, and that that is a stand in <laughs> for what it is to what, what the South is. Right. Whereas we know, like, that's. You know, there's a lot of places in the South that are not particularly white. Uh, there's places in the South that are not particularly poor. There's definitely places that are geographically very different. And as you point out earlier, like coal mining isn't even really a widespread job anymore, right? So I, uh, does that make more sense, me saying it that way? Like the, a kind of essentialized South as, well, as rural Appalachia. I mean, I think the new, I mean, I think 
it goes back to your earlier comments about everybody thinking about like Blair Mountain and stuff. And I think right. the people that are just kind of the, the new, I don't know, the new, the new, new left uh, is like, oh yeah, like, guess what I read about? I read, I just read, I was reading about uh, labor movements in the South and I came across the Wikipedia article for the battle, battle of Blair Mountain and it was pretty cool. And then I watched that movie that had Will Oldham in it. And, um, <laughs> and uh, so that's what I get, I get where it's coming from. Like the South is pretty cool. And, and then which, we got which get, Will Oldham movie. I got to find out now, which I know. Which one. Uh, Maybe. <laughs> the uh, palace brothers. Documentary. Tour documentary. I will uh, point out that my my friend and former roommate Rick Alverson has directed uh, several movies of Will Oldham in it. I think so. Uh, thank you, thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Mm-hmm. Anyway, but I, no, think, I, I no, sorry, go ahead, David. I was just going to say I'm not sure how widespread that view is. I think most people think of the South. They think of sort of um, the the Atlanta suburbs and down on the banks of the Chattahoochee, yeah. uh, uh, sort I of country pretty, music pretty there. Yeah, the the Florida Georgia <laughs> line, like this sort of kitschy uh-huh. suburban um, uh, play acting version of southernness with uh, Zach Brown band r- and ridiculous trucks with Trump flags flying off of them, yeah. circling parking yeah. lots. Now you're hitting close to home, buddy. That, mount, that <laughs> mountain, that mountain that Hank Williams Jr. fell down. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you know, and, and, but one of the things I do find in this again, to take it back to a a sort of racial thing is I hear people talking about the South and talking about Southerners with a sort of assumed exclusion of African-American culture, which is, Mm -hmm. which is huge. You know, it is the, the, uh, to a large degree, it is the South and yet there's a talking about the South as if it's just white guys in cul-de-sacs with big trucks who fish on the weekends and work, um, you know, some probably blue or low white collar job, um, not, ag- not agrarian, not, um, um, you know, not in a slaughterhouse, nothing like that, but, uh, uh, who, yeah, who, who, grab hold of uh, an idea of Southerness that is almost all theater. So I think that's one of the reasons that we want to talk about Blair Mountain. We want to talk about how the South used to not be what it is because they at least pretend that they're trying to catch hold of what the South used to be, but it's a completely fictitious version of the South. Yeah. Yeah, that's probably true. I'm sorry, go ahead. I think one of the things too is like, one something that I think with like the thinking of the South as white, we think of Southern voters as white. I mean, that's very clear just how from how people outside the South talk about how Southerners vote, um, which is just bonkers to me. It's just so crazy. I mean, guys living here, like we know the diversity of the the racial diversity of the South. It would be impossible for it not to be anyway because of like his, when anyway. But I think like. The other thing that I think is huge around like kind of the messed up understanding of people have of like grassroots organizing in the South and like what it would mean to organize the South is like people's like fucked up understanding of the civil rights movement as like done. <laughs> it's like uh, yeah. and as like a distinct period that wasn't like preceded by hundreds of years of 
um, of like action and organizing and, and never stopped, you know? Um, and I don't know. I just, when I, when I talk to it's like, I understand why you want to talk about the battle of Blair mountain. Right. But like, <laughs> I am sure that black people in uh, West Virginia have been organizing since then, you know, and I, I don't know. I, I'm not really sure what I'm getting at here, except to say that like, people don't even talk about like black workers organizing. Like in North Carolina, there's, there's like so, a pretty strong history of tobacco, like black tobacco workers organizing. Right. And people don't even know about that. And um, most of the worker organizing that's gone on in Louisiana has been black led. And, and one of the issues is that like, we focus so much, I think, um, as white people, like we focus a lot on white labor history because it's probably better documented and it's also like strange to see white people trying to do anything to help workers um, at this point. Um, but we don't like, there aren't really a lot of examples that we turn to of like multiracial organizing. And I think it's hard to imagine how that could work um, when things are so like, crystallized in in segregated ways um where you know in our current lives i don't know um well, sorry go ahead we got to think about it we got to do that that's part of it that's part of organizing the south is we have to build a multiracial movement that's all i'm getting at uh, yeah and i'll say that two of my experiences that i think are instructive like so when i was growing up uh again my mom will be happy to hear this but she was uh in the american postal workers union right which is a very strong union and is very multiracial right so um it was a interesting experience. i don't i didn't think about it at the time but looking back it was probably a different experience than a lot of white people have growing up in the south where if we go to a union meeting which we uh tagged along to a lot because they had them in steakhouses and so we got to go eat steak so uh but, you know, it's not the leadership of the American Postal Workers Union are not universally white or worth then even locally. Right. It was a very, mm -hmm. uh, very, very multiracial um, organization. Uh, the whole well, that's, something I, hmm? I, that's something I was going to say was just that I think that a lot of the union and labor organizing that's happened has been a lot less white than people realize. And it's just sort of told through that lens. Uh, I remember uh, maybe it was in Harlan County, USA, where they talk about everybody comes out of the, comes out of the mind black. And when I was teaching a little that line, go ahead. Yeah, I'm one of my friends from West Virginia is, you know, he's Syrian descent. There's people from, uh, from all over the world who came to work in the mines. And they weren't uh, universally uh, sort of, I guess, white. Uh, and even the ones who were white were often uh, marginalized white people. Yeah, that line, I was saying that line went over very well. I used to show that documentary when I taught at Loyola, and um, this, my students always liked that that scene a whole lot. Um, I was going to say the other thing too, so that growing up, that was the Postal Workers Union was very multiracial. And uh, I think I've probably talked to Caitlin about this before. In New Orleans, um, just being involved in being a parent in local schools and fighting to not have our school closed was uh, was really interesting dynamics because, you know, New Orleans is majority non-white, majority black city. Um, and uh, the if you if you are not in, in your private schools as kind of, 
it's a huge racial it's a huge racial divide in New Orleans of who goes to what school. Uh, and so if you're not in the private school pipeline, you are uh, constantly interacting with with um, other parents who are not white, who, who are largely black. And so when our school was going to be closed, there was a coalition that developed around that, which was really interesting demographically because there were a lot of special needs kids at the school. And so you weren't just getting... Um, you weren't just getting like working class people; you're getting wealthy people who didn't have private because private schools don't have to take special needs kids, and you were getting a lot of black parents who were already very organized over a lot of other issues that were happening to their kids in New Orleans, and and who took leadership on this so that you had these kind of wealthy white parents, some of them very very conservative parents, very like Trump supporting parents, um, who were involved in the same kind of broad coalition with with uh, black parents from around the city to try to keep this school open and it was a very frustrating experience it was a very bad experience but it was also heartening in a way because you could see that it is possible to have people work together on these issues it is possible to have people who um, are able to sit around in in a crappy cafeteria room and talk about like to develop a plan to how do we how do we make the superintendent of schools like look bad how do we make him feel miserable at this meeting like how do we do this like what what exactly levers can we pull here what leverage do we have and then you also saw like kind of the 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 conservative voting members understanding how you could not that they didn't understand before but in a new way about how. Uh, it worked different racially to be able to see what levers of power you can pull on in the city and not to um, was interesting to see. So those are my two examples over, uh, you know, things that exist right now that maybe maybe can exist in the future in a stronger way. Yeah, I think what you're saying is really important because if we're talking about like, what does it mean to organize the South? Like, it's not like a nebulous concept, right? Like, those are places where people naturally like are in situations where they're not that are not segregated right like and the pro like the difficulty i think that people that i i personally see is like how how effective like making sure that those places are fewer and fewer um Uh actually is uh against or like working class organizing like it it it's not a coincidence that that like destroying the school system meant that like it was it's now segregated again it's not a coincidence right. that, like when uh the you know when we try to like de- like take away some of the strength of the postal workers union like that um i mean the postal workers union is like historically like one of the a very important force in like um building the black middle class and stuff but um but just as we see fewer and fewer places like that where people naturally come together and are because of their shared interests, it just becomes so much harder to actually organize. And I, you know, that's just, but there are places and that's where we have to look, right? It can't just be, we decided we're now going to organize uh, the multiracial working class. Like we actually have to go to where people are already together. And, um, you know, that's tough, but because it reduces your options in terms of like what you're actually doing, but it's not impossible. It's not impossible. That's true. It's not impossible. I, I know we're kind of uh, we're running uh, um, towards the end, and and I was hoping that if the, the, end, of Ameri- uh, the, end, of, the end of the American uh, project experiment, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
actually, I don't want to put you on the spot too much, Caitlin, but, and I know we didn't tell you to have anything on deck or anything, but I am a big fan of sort of uh, narratives and anecdote. And I was wondering if you have any sort of interesting stories about things that have happened to you while you were organizing. Do you do field organizing? Do you, um, are you more somebody who shows up at, at, uh, at city council meetings or do you go out in the field? I'm just curious if you have any stories about what it's actually like to do what you do. Um, I mean, Currently, like right now, what I do is I work with different socials. I work with different chapters of Democratic Socialists of America um, to help them learn how to organize and help them get stronger. And um, I'm not great at remembering stories, if I'm being perfectly honest with you. Uh, but it's been, <laughs> it's been really fascinating to see like how how people have found like ways to actually build the build socialist organizations at different in different parts of the south um they all look re like successful groups look very different everywhere you know um but also yeah like it's it's just been really fascinating to watch um in places where like one of the places where we have the most so we're a national organization right and there are a lot of things that there are a lot of different issues that we organize around because we're socialists and we can't choose just one. Um, everything's connected. And there's an incredible amount of organizing around the Green New Deal happening around in the Gulf Coast. And like, it's not something that you would necessarily know if you weren't like, if you were part of this organization, but maybe somewhere else, but like, you might think, oh, well, probably most of that organizing is going on in like bigger cities where the Green New Deal doesn't sound like such a scary thing to people. But it's actually like, if you look at it, like the members doing the most work around that are literally just like the chapters along <laughs> that are along the Gulf Coast. And it's because uh, we all had to like <laughs> deal with uh, 5,000 different hurricanes, you know, um, in one in one year. And uh Meanwhile, like in other places, that same kind of like eco-socialist sort of approach is not the same. But it's I, I, what what has been interesting is seeing places where we're like building power through like getting people into city councils, which is something that like has been very like lifted up pretty heavily, like in places like Chicago and stuff. But honestly, like we have two members on Nashville city council too, like like we're quietly taking over Tennessee um, and <laughs> people don't appreciate that enough, I think. Um, and like the fact, like almost like we had a huge, we played a huge part in Marquita Bradshaw, like getting as many votes as she did. And I mean, I don't focus on electoral stuff, but it's a very clear like marker of progress. Um, I think in turn, cause it, cause you have to have so much in place in order to actually win an election. Um, I don't. I know that that's not like an anecdote, um, but I think that's that's what I got right now. I, no, you're, you're, you're supposed to have a like tight that. a tight five minutes on uh, on stories. <laughs> I should come up. Well, with let, let's say uh, let's say I have a fr I have a friend, and he's been made to uh, he's been made to work. Uh, he's been made to viol He's currently uh, his workplace is violating the county judge. And the Harris County Board of Health uh, order to stay home, and he's trying and he's <laughs> tried to organize his workplace. Like, what advice would you give him? 
just if I, <laughs> next time I see him. Is he he a is a teacher, yeah. He teaches math. Does he have a union? He does, yeah. He is worried. It's, a, a, it's more of a joke. He is, uh, I'm in oh, a union. Yeah, I, I'm, it's, a, it's me. It's, it was me all along. Oh. Yeah. What? <laughs> I bought into the premise. Yeah. Dang and it. I have been work. I've been working with my union and working with uh, the. Uh, I've been working with the DSA chapter too, like in Houston, to try to do some oh, really? stuff. They're yeah, so great. Do some stuff. They're so great. It's kind of a little. I think. Go ahead. Yeah. What Houston? What Houston is working on right now? I think it's super interesting. They have this big campaign, right? And it's like, it's it's a big campaign to because the mayor and you can correct me if I don't know what I'm talking about, but the mayor in Houston like sets the agenda yeah. for the city council. And that's wild to me because it's like, why have a city council if the mayor is just going to say, you can't talk about that if I don't want right. you to. So DSA is like heading up this like coalition effort to, to, to not make this so that the city to make it so that the city council actually sets that elect that um, the agenda. And like, it's such like a small thing that most people probably don't think about ever in their lives, or they might like once or maybe if they're like once or twice, um, but it would be this massive shift in power uh, from like a single individual to a group of individuals, which is just like so much closer to actually having like working like any working class power, the ability for the working class to like change things in the city. Um, and I hope they win. I don't have anything else to say except that no. I think it's so cool. No, that is cool. Yeah, the charter, uh, the to amend the amend the city charter to give. Yeah, it's a pretty cool. I mean, and I think those kind of things, I mean, people, we just focus on the bit. We focus on, like, defeating John Cornyn and, like, making, you know, Joe Biden, you know, winning Texas when there could be more things like that happening. But. Yeah, for sure. Well, I think that's a, a good place to wrap it up. So thanks a lot, Caitlin, for coming on. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah. I, lo I love talking to you guys about this topic. If you have thoughts. Let's, I'll hear them. Let's hear them. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Thank you. Uh, nice to meet you, Caitlin. Nice to meet you. Yeah, nice to meet you.